This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. Back in the great state of Iowa today, and we have an excellent program for you. For this episode, we greet Mr. Warren Watson, who was recommended to us by Ms. Tova Brandt, the Executive Director of the Museum of Danish America. Warren is affiliated with the Museum of Danish America as a researcher and archivist. In this episode, Warren will be providing research techniques for the family historian that will help people researching their ancestors. Whether you're new to genealogical research or not, Warren has some great tips for us today. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe, coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature information about museums, cultural, and heritage institutions historical preservation, and genealogical societies across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program or if you have questions or comments about the program, Spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Hey, I've got some news from Ben Terwilliger, the executive director of the Eudora Area Historical Society located in Eudora, Kansas. Ben is asking everyone in the area who worked at the Sunflower Army Ammunition Plant to please plan to attend the July 2023 program. Ben is inviting as many former sunflower plant workers as possible to share their stories from when they worked at the plant. Last year's program was a big success, but last year they ran out of time and not everyone had a chance to share. So if you didn't have the chance to share your stories last year, please come on down and share this year. The Eudora Area Historical Society asks that you please limit your remarks to 10 minutes or less in length. The July program will be on Thursday, July 20th at 7 p.m. at the Eudora Community Center at 1630 Elm Street. For more information, contact Ben Terwilliger, Eudora Area Historical Society Executive Director at EudoraHistory at gmail.com or call 785-690-7900. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we meet with Preservation Burlington and Mr. Ron Wanamaker. 
the president of the board. Preservation Burlington preserves and protects the historic architecture and livability of Burlington through education and advocacy. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Here are 10 things not to ask a family historian. Number one, don't you already have enough books? Number two, have you finished your tree yet? Number three, didn't you already tell me this story? Number four, shouldn't you be doing housework or something else? Number five, didn't we already go to this cemetery? Number six, how much did you spend on that subscription? Number seven, so do you have all your research organized yet? Number eight, do you really need all these binders and folders? Number nine, where are you going to put all this? Number 10, didn't you say one more website hours ago? Hey, those are great. I've heard most of those from my family members. Thank you to www.genealogygirltalks.com for the 10 things not to ask a family historian. All right, so let's meet Warren Watson. Warren Watson is a retired middle school teacher who says that it took him 27 years in a classroom of kids to learn there must be a better way to lose hair. <laughs> Warren was born and raised in Sioux City, Iowa, a historic riverboat city on the Missouri River. Sioux City has a rich past dating back to the Lewis and Clark expedition. Warren was born with a passion for history, any and all history. The history could be local or ancient Greece. He was the only kid in Smith Elementary that when asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, he'd answer, an archaeologist. Well, that didn't happen, but his passion for researching the past never waned. And thankfully, he's with us today, and he's happy to share some of the experiences and lessons he's learned along the way. Let's bring him on now. Welcome to the program, Warren. Good to be here, Sean. Warren, what kind of work do you do with the Museum of Danish America? Well, one of my functions with the museum is I serve on the collections review committee. And I'm the volunteer that as articles are sent to the museum for possibly being included in the collection, we sit as a committee and decide whether they would fit into our collection or not. And I really enjoy doing that. The committee members that I work with, I each time we meet, I'm I'm awed at their expertise and their professionalism as, as we go through and make those determinations on whether those articles should be included as part of the museum collection. I I add a little bit of, of the local flavor since the museum is more of a national and international enterprise. I kind of put the local spin on things as the collection items come before us. Oh, very cool. Now, I understand you're a retired teacher. How long have you been retired? Uh, I've been retired now for 10 years. Wow, cool. Are you getting used to it yet? Oh, I love every second of it. <laughs> I love teaching. I loved every minute of it. But when I was done, I was done. And now it was on to new adventures. Yeah, now you get to do what you want to do. Absolutely. Are you currently researching anything interesting? Well, it seems like I'm always researching something. And uh, I guess my biggest project right now is I'm working 
on a book about a Danish immigrant, Chris Madsen, and I'm working with two authors in Denmark on telling his story. He was quite a colorful character that came to the United States in 1876. He ended up in Oklahoma as being what was referred to as one of the three guardsmen of Oklahoma. He was a U.S. federal marshal down in Oklahoma and helped to tame the West in Oklahoma, which was not an easy job. No, not at all. No, not back then. That would be very difficult. You can't really track anybody electronically. There was no Internet. Yeah, you had your horse and a wagon and then whatever you could pry out of the local people. Yeah. Which was sometimes easy, but most of the time very hard. When will that be published? Well, we're shooting for 2025. My part of it, composing all of his time in the United States, and then they're taking his first 25 years in Denmark. I hope to be done with mine by the end of the year. But uh, like I say, as you start writing, the researching never stops. And so it seems like we're always adding new things that we discover and as you add, then you got to take something out because the book can only be so long. But I really enjoy it. Yeah. Is the length of the book predetermined? Well, publishers today, believe it or not, unless you're a well-established author, they're not going to let you write a volume. And so today's books, you'll see, are anywhere from three to 400 pages long. And they feel like with today's audiences, unfortunately, that's about as long as they can uh, stay on one topic. So we got to try to try to keep it down to somewhere around 350 pages. Oh, I see. Yeah, that must be tough. So maybe next year it will be published? Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a title yet? You know, we don't have a title. Okay. Well, we'll look for it. But it's Chris Madsen, so... Yep. Okay, now that we've learned a bit about you, Warren, please feel welcome to give the audience your thoughts on research techniques for the family historian. Well, I think what I'll start off with, and I'll, I'll kind of this first half, I'll, I'll discuss some of the sources that I've used to research over the years. And before I start, there's just a couple things that I want to point out before I start listing some of my research techniques. Okay. And the first one for anyone that wants to attempt to research really any topic, not just your family, but if you're researching tractors or dogs or whatever, and this is just my personal suggestion, research your own family first. Get in there. Get that down in writing for a number of different reasons. Number one, for future generations. Somebody somewhere down the line, it may be that your present day family will think very little about what you're doing and think it's not that important. But somewhere down the line, a couple generations, you're going to find a great grandchild that's going to thank you for what you did at that particular time. And another thing is, as you start researching, especially other people and other people's families, if you've researched truly your own family first, 
it can be a very humbling experience because you're going to find that you had some relatives that did some really neat things. But I'll guarantee you, you're going to find some relatives that did some things that weren't quite so positive. And I think that's important for you to realize. So when you, you take a different type of attitude into you're researching someone else's family or someone else's experiencing, knowing that, hey, we all have things in our, in our family's past that we can be very proud of and some things that we're not so proud of. So do your own family first. And then just another little thing that I, that I thought of, there's quite a few Danish tours that come through. They always, when they come to America, they always have to stop in Elkhorn, which is great. And so I've given a number of presentations to Danes. And one thing that I've discovered with Danes, and I share this with them, is that we in America, when, when we think of past history, we think 100, 150 years ago, that that's ancient history. But for Europeans, 100 years, 150 years, that's like last week to them. And so it kind of puts a time perspective into your research that you may not realize as you go into it. So when you're thinking, oh, this happened 100 years ago, for instance, one of the first things I'll talk about here is something that happened in 1915. To us, we think, oh man, that was a long, long time ago. But in reality, it really wasn't that long. America's history really is very recent compared to history in other parts of the world. So those are just two things I, I kind of wanted to start my talk off with. Thank you. Yeah, but the first thing, and, and I guess where I first started my research was with our family Bible. And I, and I understand that not everyone has a family Bible, and, and I'm not certain that family Bibles are really a big thing these days anywhere in the United States. But we have a family Bible that dates back to 1915. And like I said, to me, that seems like a long, long time. It's really not that long ago. But I remember as a kid going through this big old Bible with all these colorful pictures and and illustrations and engravings in it. And I guess one of the most interesting things in that Bible was in a lot of these old family Bibles, they had a section where you list all the births, all the deaths, and all the marriages. And I remember as a kid, I looked through those lists time and time again. And they were always written, you know, with different signatures of different people over the years and it always stood in my mind as boy here sits my family history and I'm glad somebody kept track of that in that family bible and I guess the next step from there then in researching my own family was trying to determine who was in those old photo albums and, you know, even to this day, after decades of researching my family, if you dig enough, you still come across photos of your family and of my family that I've never seen before. And so what I try to do is take those 
family photo albums and take them around to my oldest relatives and try to get written down on the back of those pictures, just who that was, what the time period might have been, and where that was taken. And so we go from family Bible to old family photos, and then taking those family photos around to the oldest family members that you can find. And then keep checking those family attics all the time. You'll still find things in attics you didn't know were there. Then in my researching, not only my family, but in other areas of research, the, the next step is your local library. And especially in the Midwest, about every small town will have will still have a, a local library that's still hanging in there. And go in there and dig around in those libraries. I've had so many positive experiences. Those librarians that are there, I've never come across one that hasn't been more than willing to help with any questions that I might have. And one little trick that I've come up with in going into local libraries, when I'm asking questions, and I know there's other people sitting in that library, I'll ask them quite out loud. And more than once, I've had somebody that was sitting in there hear my question, and they were the ones that had the answer to my question. It wasn't necessarily the library, but somebody that was sitting in there reading a book. And that happened to me once in eastern Iowa when I was doing some research on an old pioneer's cemetery out there. And I had questions about where the stones had gone. And, and this particular gentleman that was sitting in there told me the whole history behind that pioneer cemetery. So there's all kinds of good stuff you can get out of a local library. Usually it's the local libraries that will have your newspapers and they'll have copies of those local newspapers that you won't be able to find online. And I'll, I'll deal with the online newspaper in a little bit, but ask if the libraries have those local newspapers, you can find a lot of information out of that. And then next, uh, your local town museums. In the Midwest, there's a lot of local town museums around, but they're not staffed very, very well. And so a lot of times you'll, you'll, you'll find the museums and you go up there and there'll be nobody working at that particular time, but almost always there will be a number there for you to call. And I encourage you, don't walk away from that number. Call that number because those people on that other end, I've never had them turn down a request to come and open up the museum and share what they know. So go to those local town museums and you'll find all kinds of interesting objects and documents in those local town museums. I was in one in Northeast Nebraska where they made the, the claim that they had General Custer's boot that was taken after the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Now, I never question anything that they have there, but you'll find all kinds of interesting objects. But you got to look. You got to go. 
and they'll all be volunteers. And uh, one of the sad things is it's getting harder and harder to fill that role of volunteers on these local town museums, but they are absolute gold mines. A step above that will be the county museums. And some of the best of the towns really have a tough time keeping up with the county museums also, because again, that's all volunteer work. But you'll usually find somebody that if they're not working at that particular time, there'll be a phone number there. Give them a call. A step above that, and this is very unique for the town of Elkhorn, where I live here with the Danish community, we have a Danish genealogy center. And that deals specifically in families that want to pursue their Danish relatives. And it is an absolute gold mine that you won't find many places, probably in the United States, especially zeroing in on the Danish community. Now, there's probably other nationalities around the United States that, that have these type of uh, centers, but uh, we are very fortunate in Elkhorn to have a unique Danish genealogy center. And then I guess the step up from there would be the state archives. And the, the state archives, of course, are, are gold mines for much interesting documentation. And, you know, I use the state archives more for, for documents than I do for objects. That's where I go for a lot of the more in-depth archive materials that are shared there now one of the one of the keys when you when you start getting to, into state archives and state historical societies is what i always like to to call is look for the gatekeepers and the gatekeepers are that single person that knows the most about what's located in those archives and I'll give you an example of, uh, I was at the, uh, the American Heritage Center in Laramie, Wyoming, and I was doing research there, as a matter of fact, on Chris Madsen. And there was a number of different people that helped me, and they were very helpful, but then I happened to catch on to who the gatekeeper was there. And so then I got to approaching and talking with him. And as long as you're as specific as you possibly can with your questions. And I emphasize that very much. Don't, don't go to, uh, especially a gatekeeper with a very broad-ended question. Be very specific in what you are looking for. And he actually took me to an old card catalog. You know, you go in here and you have all the computers and you have all the programs and you have all the searches, but he took me back to an old library card catalog. And we went through that searching for the material that I was looking for on Chris Madsen. And that's where we found the location. And to me, that was, that was pretty amazing that in this age of all this technology, what I was looking for, and it was fabulous information, fabulous research, was found in an old library card catalog. But he knew where to look. He knew where to look. That was the key. 
Now, I do a lot of research also. My father served in the 30th Infantry Division in World War II. And so about 20 years ago, I set up a website to place research that I found on the 30th Division on the internet. And I found this research all, all over. I went to, if you want to go a step up above state archives, I went to the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. Now, there you really have to know what you're doing before you walk through that door. And so you have to do a lot of research about researching. I've also told people I should write a book about writing a book and all the work that goes into researching. Yeah. But you yeah. have to know what you're doing when you go in there. But the rewards of making that trip to Washington, D.C., College Park, and taking the time to go through all the hoops that it takes just to get inside there. I was looking at information and documents that the 30th Division had bundled up in Europe and sent back to the United States. And I know for certain they had never been open until I opened them at that particular time. <laughs> so I took a lot of this information, I copied it, I scanned it, I put it on my website. And so I have made many, many friends, not only in the United States, but in Europe for people that are researching the 30th Division. And so that's been very rewarding for me. I've gone to a number of 30th Division reunions, but now there isn't, there's only a couple of those guys left, you know, from World War II. And so they discontinued the, the reunion probably about five years ago. But I still get many grandchildren and children that want to know what grandpa or dad did in the war. And so then I try to accommodate them as much as I can with uh, guiding them to places on my website where they might find information. And then I probably have 10 times as much in my 30th division archives in my basement. Oh, cool. So I guess as, as I kind of briefly talk about the, the different areas where I've uh, gone to research all the way from the family Bible to the national archives, it's important that you go there. There is a lot of information on the internet and there's more and more every single year. And that's important. And, and it's really helpful because it saves on a lot of time and a lot of mileage and, and a lot of uh, motel rooms too. But still, if you really want to zero into a particular topic and really dig into as much as you can possibly find, you really have to go to these places and you have to set foot there. And I've met so many wonderful people doing that, that it's, it's a real blessing uh, meeting those people. And I always tell people, not only do you need to go there to, to find that research, but particular events or areas that you're researching, it's important that you go and actually what I call stand on history, because I can't tell you how many times I've gotten home and it may be a year or two or even five years later, and I'm reading about that particular episode. And if I have stood in that place, it means so much more to me now as I 
as I gain and, and learn about new information that I found at that particular, for that particular event. Just touching on the internet a little bit, almost all organizations will have a website these days, and that can be very helpful. Most of the smaller organizations I have found have probably gone away from updating websites and gone to a Facebook page, which is, is good and, and bad, I think, but th there's a lot of the organizations that are on Facebook now. So you cannot avoid that as a, as a possible source for your research. And uh, the Facebook does allow you for more interaction with that organization also, as opposed to a website. A couple of the sites that I find very, very helpful on the internet is newspapers.com. And they're putting more and more newspapers online all of the time. One of the advantages of that, as opposed to going to archives personally, is a lot of the archives that I've gone to over the years, their newspapers are on microfiche or microfilm. And I've about gone blind reading that stuff, I'll tell you. But newspapers.com does a good job of uh, presenting those old newspapers in a readable form. And so that's very helpful. And, and another thing that's very helpful with the online newspaper reading is it's very easy to copy off those pages as opposed to trying to do that on location. And so newspapers.com, it is a subscription site, but it's well worth the money. I know in, uh, Sean had a list of 10 things that never to ask a family historian. And one of them was don't ask about how much money you spend on subscriptions on the <laughs> internet. But I will tell you, that's a very worthwhile subscription. And the other one that I would highly recommend is ancestry.com. That is, I have gotten so much information off of that. And some people think, well, that's, that's good just for your family. And it is great just for your family. But you can type anybody's name in there that you want, and it will bring up all kinds of valuable information on any person that you're researching. And so, yes, I pay that monthly fee for Ancestry.com, but it has given me a wealth of information that I would never have run across without it. So I would I highly recommend those two sites. Your county historical societies will have websites, and I've found a lot of information on the county historical websites. And then you have what's called the U.S. GenWeb Project, and that's free, and all of the states subscribe to that. And so that's the U.S. GenWeb Project, and that's free, and they have a lot of valuable information on there also. Uh, another thing, I'm the sextant for the for the local cemetery here, and uh, I update my tombstones as the tombstones are updated to what's called iowagravestones.org. What that does is you can visit every grave, every cemetery in Iowa that takes part in the iowagravestones.org, and almost every cemetery does. I know they do in Nebraska, too. I'm just not familiar with a lot of other states. But all that you do is 
you type in the cemetery, type in a name, and they'll tell you whether that person is buried there or not. And they will show you a photo of the tombstone also. So that's iowagravestones.org or just gravestones.org. And then you can kind of zero in on whatever state you're in. And so those are some, uh, some possible internet helps for you that I would suggest. You know, I guess the biggest thing that, that I would encourage who's ever listening to this podcast is probably that person that should be doing their family history, that you get in there and get something written down for future generations about your family. And I'll guarantee once you start digging, you're not going to stop. You know, I have a sister-in-law that she's got into genealogy and, and everybody has their own thing. And I don't criticize anybody for what they do. But she's gotten back into the family history, back into Europe, you know, and she's looking what prince or princess or king or queen, you know, is is in the family. And and to me, I like to stay in the United States. And when I get to a point where it's a little foggy about just whether I'm on the right track or not, then that's just fine for me. That's a good stopping point for me. And then what I do is that research and those family members that I, I, I know where they lived and what they did and when they died and everything, then I start digging for those stories because it's always about the stories. That's the important thing. And so then those relatives that I am certain were part of my family, my line, then I start digging deeper and deeper into the stories that deal with them. And, I, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough the importance that I put into families having a grasp of where they came from and what the people did before them to put them in the place that they're in now. So this might be a, a good place to kind of stop at this point and Sean if you have any questions for me if there's anything I can clarify you know maybe we can take a few minutes to do that thank you Warren I want to make a comment about you mentioned the local genealogical or historical society and contacting them as well as the county museums and the local town museum I think that's sage advice I was in New Jersey researching a family and I had contacted the local genealogical society and I had a historian who was meeting me there and so as I'm talking through you know where was this family and here's what we know and so on and so forth the historian said well have you been down here to this research library I said well, I didn't even know there was one down here and it turned out that there was a separate library from the town library that was set up you know back in the early 1900s and was just sitting there a gold mine and we went there i found a number of different source records for this family and it was just great so i think your point about just talking to people in the local area letting them get to know you get to know them as soon as that conversation and that relationship starts you will get much further in your research yeah, your story just brought a big smile to my face because I, 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 I can relate 
to having that experience. And, you know, it doesn't take long for those people to know who's serious and who isn't, you know. Right, right. And it's not that, and I'm not critical of anyone that's just kind of first getting into it because I was a rookie at one time too. But you've, you've got to get, get in there and go through those rookie experiences and, and you'll get better and better at it all the time. And the people that you will meet will be some of the best people you meet in your whole life. It's just amazing. That is true. It's part of what inspired me to do this podcast was all of the people that I met down through the years in doing that research. I never had a bad experience and I always came away learning more than I knew before I started. The other thing I'd mention is I did an episode with the Lynn County Genealogical Society. And the director of the society said, and I quite agree, you know, there are records that will never be online. They're just too fragile or they're too, you know, they're too private, whatever. But there, there's records that we hold in our genealogical society that we will never put online. And so you need to step into that organization and start talking with people. Absolutely. Yep. And that's what I say. You got to stand on history. You got to go where that history is at, you know? Yeah. And you'll run into places like you described, you know, that little research center. You know, you're standing on where that, that history was first preserved. And uh, you wouldn't have known about it unless you were there. Yeah. The other thing I read recently, and this is probably just me catching up, it probably happened a while ago, and I just didn't have it bookmarked in my mind, was that the Family History Library in Salt Lake has now all of their microfilm digitized. They've completed that. So, wow, that, what a deal. I know, wow, I, that's, that's miles of microfilm. Oh, I'm sure of that, yes. So that's all done. When you put information on iowagravestones.org, does it eventually end up in Find a Grave? No, those are two different sites. Okay. Uh, to my knowledge, it's not. But Find a Grave is also a wonderful site also. I couldn't agree with you more on the finding the stories about your ancestors. I try to do these historical dates, events for each of the episodes of Preservation Oaks. And in one of them, you know, we had the Great Crash in 1929, right? Uh, the Great Depression yeah. started with the Wall Street crash. Well, there was a similar crash in 1839. And not too many people know about it. But mm -hmm. if your ancestors were living in 1839, Wall Street crashed in 1839 just as bad as it did in 1929. Yes, yeah. So they could have been affected by that. And that's part of telling those stories. And that's why we bring on book shorts segments into the podcast so that people can hear about books that if they, if they read those books, they'll make progress very quickly. I only feature books where you can pick it up, read it, and hopefully make progress right away. You know, as you do more and more researching, you do a better job at picking out the books that you think are going to help you. You know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take long for you to, to recognize authors that you can trust 
because there, there's <laughs> on any subject, boy, you're going to have a, a, a lot of different authors out there, you know. Oh yeah. And you need oh, to, yeah. you don't, you don't want to uh, go through a whole, a whole book on an author that, maybe has not quite got the, a handle on the whole story. Yep, that's right. Warren, it's time for a break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. This is Sean Thomas. If you have a society in your area, then please support them with your volunteer time and funding. The more support they have, the more they can benefit the community in terms of providing records for family research and education for the public and students in grades K through 12. With adequate funding, the society can stand up a museum or sponsor historical and fun events in order to tell the historical story of the area and its inhabitants. Maintaining a society makes a huge difference in a community. Please don't wait. Show your support for your local historical or genealogical society today. They preserve our heritage and culture for existing and future children of all ages. Thank you. This is Lindsay Flory, Programming Director of the Osage County Historical Society and Holly Genealogical Research Center. I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Heather Moran, the president of the Camden Rockport Historical Society, located in Rockport, Maine, and I enjoyed being a guest on Preservation Oaks with Sean Radcliffe. Bring your family or bring a friend and visit the Condi Charlotte Museum. It's well worth your time to visit and support the efforts to bring history to life for you and your family. For hours, directions, and more, visit CondiTrollet.com. Plan a visit to the worthwhile museum and let the truly knowledgeable docents tell you all about the life and times of its residents and mobile. Soon you'll be able to walk into your Admiral Dealer's store and confidently buy the style radio or radio phonograph you want. The selection of Admiral radios will be complete. There'll be radio phonographs with the famous Admiral exclusive features, slide away that makes loading and unloading your record changer so easy, and the foolproof Admiral automatic record changer. There'll be consoles and table models and newly designed cabinets of fine woods and modern plastics. There'll be farm sets and portables in many styles and sizes, including the popular Admiral Bantam, the camera-type radio that operates on alternating current, direct current, or self-contained batteries. There'll be new electronic refinements and AM, FM, and shortwave reception. And now about television. Admiral's extensive research assures television receivers with true Admiral quality. So, whatever you want in radio, you'll find it in an Admiral, America's smart set. You can get a very good idea of what Admiral will offer if you're right for a free copy of the new full-colored booklet entitled It's a Promise from Admiral. Just write your name and address on a penny postcard and mail it to Admiral in care of this radio station. That's all. Just your name and address mailed to Admiral at this station. Nine out of ten curators agree. Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the Internet. 
It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. Welcome back to Book Shorts. We have a great segment today. There's a genealogist slash author slash speaker slash educator by the name of Moises Garza who has written a book that I think many family historians with Mexican ancestors can benefit from. It's entitled Mexican Genealogy Research Online, A Guide to Help You Discover Your Mexican Ancestry. The second edition provides family historians with a solid foundation for finding Mexican ancestors online. Mr. Garza's passion for genealogy started in the cotton fields of West Texas. As a migrant worker, he worked in the fields next to his father, who had a sharp memory and told countless stories about his ancestors. Moises has been a family historian since 1998. Since then, he's helped countless others in their own quest to find their ancestors. Today, he continues with this passion by publishing and creating resources to help others with their Mexican research. There are a lot of families with Mexican heritage. And this book was written to save them time and money. It contains information about using free internet resources and takes the beginner family historian from the basics of getting started with genealogy to more advanced topics of research. Okay. Welcome to Book Shorts, Moises. Thank you, Sean. It's an honor and pleasure to be here with you today. Moises, I'd like to say thank you for writing this book to help researchers understand how to make progress researching Mexican ancestors. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, noticing our, or my tiny little book to help uh, Mexican-Americans or third generation, second, third generation uh, Mexican-Americans help find their ancestors. Absolutely. I think it's just invaluable for people to know where the sources are, where they can find records on their ancestors, and the best way to do it. So your book is really good. What motivated you to write the book? My main motivation, uh, there's a, a one or two excellent books out there and that you guys could actually find on Amazon that are great, but they were written prior to the year 2000. So they don't really have references to anything online that's updated. And to be honest with you, my second edition book actually needs a third edition book to bring up to date those links. But wow. the good thing is that those links are smart links. So whenever the website goes down, I'll look for something similar and replace it on the back end. So the book, it's always evergreen. It won't be out of date that you're going to find dead links. And if anybody does find one in my book, just let me know, email me, and I'll find the equivalent or fix the link so it could continue working as it was designed to. But my main motivation was to bring those resources to the, the internet era where you could find your ancestors online with basically without leaving your home. You could do your research just from your house. Fantastic. Yeah, I like that about the book. It's very practical, very down to earth. It's written for people who are not wealthy, who don't have money to pay genealogists all over the place, they can do it themselves. And that's a really good thing. 
Can you give us an overview of your book, Mexican Genealogy Research Online, a guide to help you discover your Mexican ancestry? Sure, Sean. I start the book with common misconceptions, you know, and those are my common misconceptions that I had growing up. And I know a lot of Mexican-Americans are going to find that they have those same misconceptions. And just to tell you, one of, one of those misconceptions is that we think that there's nothing out there for our ancestors. For example, I grew up in, in a north, northeastern Mexico in the state of Tamaulipas in a very rural area where there was practically no people around or a big town within 20 miles of where the ranch was located. So one assumes like there's no records for our ancestors or maybe our ancestors were poor. There's nothing to document them. But, you know, I talk about some of those misconceptions. I also talk about doing research with Google, which is the world's biggest search engine. I talk about starting with a good and solid foundation of the citing your sources, citing everything that you find. And basically, other tips and tricks, and it contains about, I want to say, 25 to 30 articles that will help you start your Mexican genealogy research the right way and also build a solid foundation to build on top of that as you go on learning more. Fantastic. How's the second edition different from the first? Well, the main difference is that the first is no longer available. And the first edition had 20 articles. And the second ed edition has those 20 articles updated and also includes about 10 more articles. And since you were talking earlier that, you know, it's great if you don't have a budget or to pay somebody. And like I always tell people, if you have more money than time, we'll pay somebody to do your genealogy. Now, if you have more time than money, there's nothing more rewarding than learning to do it yourself and find those records and those ancestors by yourself. But, you know, if your budget is tight at this moment due to the economy or for whatever reason, you could just go to my website, mexicangenealogy.com and click on the tab or the link that says resources on the top. And you're going to be able to find an email series there that's titled uh, Meet Your Ancestors. It's 20 articles in 20 days, and that's actually the first edition. But remember, signing up for it, it's free, but you have to do the work. You have to read those articles and make sure you understand them. Not just because you signed up and you're going to get 20 articles. That does not mean that you're going to learn how to do or get started with Mexican genealogy research. Right. Yep. That's good advice. How does your book help the family historian make progress in finding their ancestors? Well, it helps you make progress by, you know, getting rid of those misconceptions and actually testing out the misconceptions that you have. Also shows you how to do online research, shows you about family search, which is, a, as you may know, the biggest repository of genealogical information. For example, all the Catholic church records for Mexico, or not all of them, but a good 90, over 90% of them are online there. Some are indexed, some are not. And that's where you have to actually go out to the back end and browse the documents. And the book will show you how to do that. Also, they have the, the civil registration records online. Same thing, not all of them are indexed, but you will get with the book, you will get a good idea how to go to the back end and uh, narrow it down and search those documents manually. So 
it will help you make progress because you will read about things that you may have not known. Or even if you're an experienced researcher, you're going to be able to see how I do things. So you may pick up one or two gold nuggets for your own research. Where's the best place for someone to get a copy of the book? The best place? It's Amazon. It's on Amazon.com. And the reason for that is because they do the printing and they do the shipping. So basically, I don't have to do anything, just promote it or send an occasional email letting people know that the book is actually available. Okay, thank you for that. Now, Moises, you mentioned that you have a genealogy group. What was it called? Yes, I have a genealogy group. It's uh, called Las Villas del Norte. And in English, it's called the Villages of the North. And it's named after the 1749 settlements that Jose Descandón did on northeastern Mexico, which is now the current state of Tamaulipas, Mexico. Yeah. And I would love to invite everybody to check it out. It's uh, lasvillasdelnorte.com, or you could just go to my website, moisesgarza.com, and you will find the link to it there. But, uh, you know, we have a recorded every single presenter that has presented for us. We have a database of over a million people and that's very well documented for Northeastern Mexico and South Texas. And we have, uh, you know, journals and newsletters. And unlike other genealogy societies, we don't, we don't just give you the journal or the newsletters from the day that you sign up. If you sign up, you could go back eight years and download all the content as eBooks for your own genealogical database. Oh, very cool. Now, you're on Facebook with this group, too, as well. Yes, we're on Facebook for Las Vías del Norte, but that's more for members. What I highly recommend everybody is just go to Facebook, search for Mexican Genealogy, and you will find our group. It's the biggest one that's there. It's about 41,000 to 42,000 members. Wow. And it's a great companion for the book. If you buy the book and you have any questions, you could find me there, or you could just ask the community, and the community is very welcoming. And it's taken us years to create a culture of caring people. We want to create this culture of sharing and helping each other out, you know, and also about a safe place where you could share your discoveries and tell the community, you know, because we, we may tell, for example, I tell my wife about a discovery I made and she just like rolls her eyes like, okay, once, a, you know, again. So our family may not be that understanding, but everybody in that group, like, they'll love to hear about what you have to say about genealogy. Fantastic. Moises, are all the presentations done in Spanish? No, all the presentations are in English. We probably only have about two of them that are from two Mexican researchers that are actually in Spanish. Every, everything on Las Vías del Norte, it's in English. It's ah. for Mexican-Americans. You know, anybody that has roots in Mexico or roots in the United States. And most of the presentations are genealogy and methodology focused. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for being a guest on Book Shorts. I'd like to thank you for your time and for your book. I really think this book, written from your hands-on perspective, is invaluable to family researchers with Mexican ancestors. You come back anytime, okay? Thank you, Sean. Really appreciate it. And uh, once again, thank you for having me over. Get your very own copy of the book, Mexican Genealogy Research Online, a guide to help you discover your Mexican ancestry by author Mr. Moises Garza at Amazon.com. Oh, and as Moises mentioned, he also has a website you can visit. 
which is mexicangenealogy.com. Moises is available as a speaker to groups. If you'd care to engage him as a speaker, please visit moisesgarza.com. Moises Garza has authored several other books available covering various topics about Mexican genealogy. He has a genealogy conference coming up in September 2023. Find more information about those at moisesgarza.com. I'm so glad we found Moises and his wonderful work helping people to find their Mexican-American ancestry. And I'm happy to bring this information to our listeners so they can make progress on their Mexican-American heritage. If you have questions or comments, please send them to preservationoaks at gmail.com. I thank you in advance for doing that. Much appreciated. Okay, we'll see you all on the next book short. And until then, keep giving and keep on living the good life. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. Again, that's preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We're here today with Warren Watson, a researcher and archivist in Elkhorn, Iowa. Warren is educating us about techniques for completing family history research. Let's pick up where we left off and welcome back, Warren. Sean, it's good to be back again. I'd just like to share with you some of the things that I've researched and some of the things that I have written. And starting first with the family history, I did a quite extensive writing of my family history, and it's very important to, to include as many photos as you can and with descriptions of the photos, who's in there and where it was and whatever. And then I self-published them. I went through, I think it was Staples or whatever, you know, and, and they ran off copies for me. And then uh, I have my own binder. So, so I can do my own binding. And then I made enough copies so I could give them to my kids and, and other family members. And, you know, you, you got to hang in there, researchers and family researchers. I'm not sure either of my kids have read through the whole histories yet, but someday they will. And not only they will, but you've got to think a couple generations in the future. There's going to be some great-grandchild that's going to grab those things, and they're going to thank you for what you did for preserving that family history. And it's, it's really not that hard to self-publish those things yourself. But again, the last page of the, the family history I put in there 
I included everything. You gotta, you gotta put the good and the bad in there. At least that's my philosophy. I discovered my grandpa's brother. He had 10 brothers. Well, one of them ended up being in the penitentiary in Lincoln, Nebraska, ended up dying of pneumonia there. I won't go into the details on why he was there, but I included that. I included a picture of him in there. And the very last page of that family history I put in there, everything that I could find in here, I didn't leave anything out. And if anybody in the family doesn't like what's in there, you can feel free to tear that page out. But I'm including everything, the, the good and the not so good. Good for you. In researching my family, then, then, then this ends up branching off into a, a lot of different areas that, that I became very passionate about researching. One was the Civil War. I've always, always been a Civil War historical nut. I've just really, ever since I was a kid, well, I found out that I had uh, a relative that served with Wilson's Lightning Brigade. Hmm. And so I did a, a whole research on that. I, he fought at Chickamauga, so I went down there. And I ended up self-publishing a, a book just for family members on his particular service in the Civil War. And so I have that book that I can share with future generations. I, uh, I had a grandpa whose dad had a farm that was on the Gettysburg battlefield. And they had picked up uh, over the years bullets off the, the battlefield. And so those have been passed down through the family. And I still have those. And I've kind of distributed them out to different family members. But I wrote up that whole experience about his farm on Gettysburg. I had a, a grandpa that that cut wood for the steamboats on the on the Missouri River, which led to me doing extensive research all the way from the early fur trading along the Missouri River to researching steamboat activity along the Missouri River, which ended up I worked and did some volunteer work for the DeSoto National Wildlife Refuge along the Missouri there. And uh, I got to know the curator quite quite well and he took me in back to look at all of the, the things from the it was a sunken steamboat the Bertrand that had been discovered and they dug that up and all the merchandise and he showed me some of the inside stuff in the back that the normal public doesn't get to see so I was very thrilled to do that no kidding my family roots going back a few generations is northeast Nebraska in southeast South Dakota, and so I've got to know the, the history behind those areas very, very well. In Ponca, Nebraska, they had, speaking of local museums, uh, the gals there showed me where the key was in the, the neighbor's house on their back porch, that anytime the library was closed when I was up in Ponca, I knew where the key was. I could go in there and open up the museum just for myself, which... I thought was pretty special. Yeah, that's cool. That also led me into doing quite a bit of research into the Sioux Uprising of 1862 in Minnesota. And so I've done a, a lot of research up in that area. I don't mean to to go into t to too much of this, but this whole researching thing has really, uh, I've branched off into a lot of different areas. I've, I've mentioned about my, my father's service in World War II. 
that led me up to self-publishing a book about his experiences in Europe fighting with the 30th Division and the website that I mentioned earlier that I've provided for family members. And, you know, I, I sometimes tell people I've been contacted by so many people in Europe that research what the American soldier did in Europe that I maybe have more contacts in Europe than I do in the United States. It amazes me on how thankful to this day, to this day, people in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and even in Germany are grateful and thankful for what the American soldier did in their liberation. Now, I didn't mention France, although there are certainly people in France that are grateful for what they did, but I think not as many in France is because France really got hit hard, you know, by the bombing that the, uh, that the Americans and the Allies had to do to France. And so their memories are not quite as pleasant as maybe some of the other countries. But that experience of researching World War II has been very fulfilling for me. And hopefully I've helped a few people along the line. And I say this as no self-praise, but it's been hundreds, maybe thousands of people that I've made contact with over the years trying to help them with gaining information on what their what their fathers or grandfathers or uncles or brothers or whoever did with the 30th Division. It just broadens your experience. It broadens your mind and your knowledge. And to me, it just awes me because you discover things you had never even thought of. And, you know, as, as you say that, one of, one of the drawbacks, of course, in life, there's drawbacks to everything. For instance, just my research into World War II, it gives you a perspective of life and people in different places and the sacrifices that people have made over the years for the betterment of the world. And it makes it harder to live in today's world where it just, and maybe it's just because I'm old, but it just seems like there's so many people today that don't understand the sacrifices that have been made for them so they can live the life that they do today. And they take so much of that for granted. And we just, we have to have a sense of where we came from, or we're just going to be lost and thinking that everything should come to us with no cost. There have been enormous costs made in the past for us to be able to be where we're at today. Absolutely. And, and researching and, and understanding what some of those costs have been in the past, I think, brings a, a better perspective of being more appreciative of what we have today. Somewhere along the line, I became involved with the Northern Cheyenne history. And through that research and through the people that and the Native Americans that I've met through that research, I've actually became an honorary member of a Northern Cheyenne family up in in South Dakota that lives up in, at the base of Bear Butte, as a matter of fact. Very cool. And so very there cool. has been some very, very rewarding experiences I've had in, in my research and my interaction with the, with the Northern Cheyenne. And that brings a different 
perspective to life also. Oh, yeah. In my 27 years of teaching, and, and in small schools, you teach a, a variety of different subjects, but for a number of years, I had fifth grade U.S. history. And so I'd always take at least the last six weeks or so of that history class to teach local history. And I take the kids out around the, the townships around Elkhorn, and we do everything from, you know, studying, uh, you know, the country schools and where they were located. And some of them are still sitting out there abandoned and, and where some old towns used to be and what those people went through. And, and so try to give those, those young kids a sense of, you know, you can talk about world history and United States history, just so much to fifth graders, but when you can get them out and again, standing on history in local history, now, many, many years later, I have kids that'll come back. And now some of that old local history that was taught, now it has some meaning to them, you know, as they're young adults. And so that's really rewarding for me also. Another little aspect of researching, you know, I'm, I'm always finding new things that amaze me about research. We had a, a couple horse stealers and murderers that got cornered in a grove out here. I won't tell you the whole story. And surrounded by townspeople. And, and eventually they were both caught in this grove, but not after they had killed a couple of locals. But anyway, there were three different local newspapers that covered that particular episode. And I, I dug into all three of the articles, and they were extensive, of those three local newspapers. And they were all about 10 miles away from where this happened in opposite directions. But while many of those, the facts that they reported were the same, there were some that were different, you know. And so there was three different people watching the exact same things unfold and three different takes on it. Right. And so that's right. one thing that you learn in researching is don't ever depend on just one source to think that you have the rest of the story or the whole story as Paul Harvey would say. You've got to you've got to look at as many different perspectives and as many different accounts as you possibly can before you come up with what you think is probably what actually happened. That's a very good point. And and, and, I, and I guess that reminds me. And as I work with my two Danish authors on the Chris Madsen book, there's a lot to be said about understanding translating and uh, all the work and research that goes into trying to do research in a different language. You have to find the right translators. You know, it, it's one thing just to put something into Google Translate, and, and it's another thing to really have somebody that understands the translation, and especially a lot of those translations are going to be written like uh, a lot of the translations I work with are written in Old Danish. Mm. Well, you've got to have somebody that understands Old Danish, and there are hundreds of dialects in Denmark also. And so, you know, to get the true meaning of, of what's coming out of that translation, you've got to find the right people to do that. And so that's that's been a real challenge for me over the years working with Danish research. 
Do you use any software for your research? Do you use like a, a family tree maker or something, some writing software to help? You know, the only thing really I use for writing is Microsoft Word. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's just to kind of help me with my writing. But I haven't really uh, used any kind of specific software for research. What about Family Tree Maker or MyHeritage or Legacy? Do you use anything like that for your own genealogy? Well, for my own genealogy, I rely on Ancestry.com, who will formulate your own family trees. Right. Okay. So my family trees come through Ancestry.com, and they do it automatically for me. That I mean, it's it's amazing because all I have to do is stick in a person, and they'll put that person in the tree where they're supposed to go, you know? Yeah, it's gotten incredibly helpful. Uh, all of the work that Ancestry.com has done in correlation with FamilySearch.org, you know, it's all sort of integrated nowadays. Yes, yes. And they integrate more and more all the time. And, and also there's institutional subscriptions to Ancestry.com. And I'm very fortunate I can go down to our genealogy center here our Danish Genealogy Center here in Elkhorn, and they have an institutional membership. And that opens up a lot more doors also that you wouldn't get from just a personal subscription. And that has allowed me to get into a lot of the military records that you wouldn't necessarily be able to access. Uh, that They may be tied to individuals that you would look at, but that you would be researching on an individual subscription, but when you get into those institutional subscriptions, then you can get regimental records on company records on, on a much more broader scale than you can get just on a first subscription. Okay. And that cool. was another thing when I when I started this uh, research in the Danish book on Chris Madsen, I was going to kind of leave all the Danish history to my two Danish colleagues in Denmark. And then I just, I, I couldn't just leave it with that. So I've, I've done a lot of research into the history of Denmark over the years. And that, and that led me into European history more in depth. And, and I, I tell you, this researching thing, it just can never get enough of it. Why did you pick Chris Madsen to research? Was he a part, a part of your family? Or what's interesting about Chris Madsen? Now, that's, that's a great question, and I referenced earlier about these brown bags, these presentations that people, experts would come in on a topic and give at the, uh, at the museum, and, and a brown bag is they give an hour talk over lunch, and local people come in and listen to whatever the presentation was, and so I was at a brown bag for a gentleman that had come up from Omaha, and he was talking about Danish immigration, just kind of in general. And in passing, he talked about how the Danish immigrants had moved west through Kansas and Nebraska and, of course, Iowa. And he made reference to a Chris Madsen who served in the U.S. Calvary. And, of course, I have a real passion for anything that, that has to do with the, the Indian Wars. And so then I asked him after his presentation, well, are, are there any books or anything on this Chris Madsen guy? And he didn't know of any. 
And so I, I started then uh, to research him because there was, there's a real passion for, you know, the U.S. Calvary at that time and the Indian Wars at that time that I had. And I, and I was digging around in our genealogy center down there. And I ran across an autobiography written by Chris Matson oh. in 1921. And it was all in old Danish. I eventually found someone in Arizona that could do that translating. And it just opened up a whole new world for me in researching Chris Madsen. And he's just, he's an amazing character in history. But that's, that's kind of how I got on the Chris Madsen research. Very cool. So next year, we'll hear more about the Chris Madsen book. Absolutely. And I'll guarantee you, and it's not that I'm trying to sell books because I could care less about that. I want his story told. Yes. And it will be a story worth listening to. Now we have the uh, the 40th anniversary of the Museum of Danish America coming up here at the last part of June. And that's in conjunction also with the annual conference of the Danish American Heritage Society. And they've asked me to give a presentation on the local history of the area. So I'll be giving a presentation on that. I'll be giving a cemetery tour for the board of the, uh, of the Heritage Society. And I'll also be part of a panel that's doing a book review on a recent uh, book by a Danish author. So I'm looking forward to that coming up in about a month. Are the talks that you give recorded? Not so much in the past, but... People are, are recording them more all the time. So I'm going to assume that these are going to be certainly the museum, I would think, that will record them. Yeah, it would be great to see, especially since the museum has a lot of members outside of Elkhorn. Oh, all over the nation and internationally. There's probably as much, if not more, interest in Denmark in the museum than in the United States. And it's, but it's quite extensive in the United States. It was really quite an honor for the small town. We're a small town of 700 people to get the museum located here in our small town. But it was definitely the right choice, in my humble opinion. Warren, do you have any more techniques for the family historian to share? Uh, not off the top of my head, I don't know. All right. Well, Warren, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. I think we've all learned a great deal from you, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here and for sharing. Uh, that's really great. I'm really glad to meet you. I very much appreciate you taking the time to help everybody with research techniques for the family historian. You're very welcome, Sean. And, and I hope if I just added a couple little helps there in researching for your audience, sometimes it's just a couple little things that will help you get going and uh, really broaden out and and be able to find all kinds of avenues out there to gain valuable research. And it's my pleasure to share what I've learned. And I've found over the years that the more that I share, the more that comes to me. And I'm very thankful for that fact. Yep, you're absolutely right. And with that, listeners, we'll end our time with our guest, Mr. Warren Watson researcher and archivist with the Museum of Danish America in Elkhorn, Iowa. Thank you very much, Warren. You come back anytime. I'd be happy to. Hope you have a great rest of your day. 
You too, Sean. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, it was very rewarding learning about Warren's top techniques for the family historian, and I thank Warren for doing that for us. Warren also mentioned that Western Iowa really needs rain very badly and has been in a drought condition for the last few years. So here's a Cherokee rain dance to help. And I'd like to ask listeners to send thoughts of rain to Western Iowa this year. Okay, while the rain dance was playing, I hope you all sent thoughts of rain for Western Iowa. If you need to go back and play it again, please do so. And please send your thoughts and keep them coming. Let's see if this experiment works. Now remember, the Museum of Danish America is celebrating their 40th anniversary this year, and Warren will be giving several presentations over the rest of the year. So if you'd like to participate in those events, please connect with the Museum of Danish America to join and donate. The contact information for the Museum of Danish America is find them on the web at danishmuseum.org, on Facebook at Museum of Danish America. They're on YouTube at Danish Museum. Their mailing address is 2212 Washington Street, Elkhorn, Iowa, 51531. You can email them at info at danishmuseum.org or you can call them at 712-764-7001. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the Museum of Danish America and they'll get your request to Warren. I hope this information helps the family historians in our audience. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, RKVC, Track Tribe, American Indian Chant with the Cherokee Rain Dance just for Western Iowa, and Cymbal Bird. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.